0: hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today we have another amazing roundtable with mike israel and eric helms eric has decided to join us this week um, because he normally just forgets about our uh, roundtables not absolutely having a dig for no reason he is obviously getting his nutrition in for muscle hypertrophy um, and has been a busy man and is eating a quest bar right now um is that right eric what flavor? I just I just finished it, and it's the. Uh,
1: I'm not paid to say this, by the way, just for the <laughs> record. I'm eating the uh, double
0: chocolate chunk. Classic. Oh. Mmm. Is the yeah. chunk classic? No, the brownie's classic. I thought uh, chunk was classic as well, so like an old. So the,
1: the the original one is it's just a straighter brownie. The chunk is like I will see your brownie in upy chunks.
2: Chunks you are could, the better ones, anyway. You could shoot the brownie yeah. one out of a fucking grenade launcher and kill people with
1: it. That's how hard <laughs> it was. Yeah, the uh, the chunk one—it's better than that. It's
0: got a little more. Well, they're all better than that now. I think that was <laughs> for <better>. sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yep. guys, I don't know which one of you wants to start. In terms of, I know, uh, Abel did a brilliant podcast with you both on the Sustainable Development Podcast or sustainable self-development podcast um, about kind of surplus rates, rates of gain. And rather than kind of go over all of that again, I want to direct the listeners to that podcast because you guys went over it in so much detail and it was fantastic. What I did want to ask is whether either of you have had a change of perspective on that or if you've kind of revised any of your thoughts. I know both of you are deep in kind of... um, book writing at the moment, uh, which is super exciting. So I didn't know if anything there had changed for either of you. So I don't don't know if Eric wants to start on that.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, I think the the big one, and I think the reason why, and Mike may correct me if if he uh, doesn't agree with this, but we're on the same page, but there's there's a difference in terms of what kind of magnitude we suggest, Um, largely because there's a dearth of good, solid evidence in this area. And uh, that's something that we're trying to, I don't have it changed my opinion on it. Cause I think with what data we have, um, that's what I use to model rates of weight gain. But, um, I am working with, uh, Gary Slater, Juma Araki um, Brad Dieter and, uh, on, on a review paper on this. And then I'm also working currently, this is going to be a while before this is done. So I don't want to plug it too much. We're actually collecting data on, uh, On weight gain. I'm doing that with some of my uh, students and colleagues at AUT, along with uh, we'll have analysis from James uh, Krieger and then Brad Dieter is helping out on the nutrition side. So we're hoping to actually get some data out there to better inform us. But um, right now, we know that uh, being in a calorie deficit suppresses um, muscle protein synthesis rates, the max you can reach. Um, So that's probably not a good idea for, for putting on muscle mass. Uh, we also know that recomp's can and do and regularly happen, especially in untrained and recreationally trained lifters. Um, you can just tell them, hey, lift weights, but without giving any kind of intentionality to, to a surplus, and they will put on robust amounts of lean body mass. But it's almost just a math equation. You know that stops working eventually, uh, like if you are metabolizing body fat, producing muscle mass. Once you get down to like the low end of your, you know, quote unquote settling point range of where everything's physiologically working normally and healthily, you're probably going to get a little hungrier getting to it. Like you won't just recon for forever. You won't just be like, Oh my God, I got shredded and I'm jacked one day. Um, man, I wish that would be so cool if that's the way it worked, but uh, it doesn't. So there's probably at least a point when you have to put yourself into an intentional surplus and it does seem that rate of weight gains slow down. Uh, the most relevant study we have is uh, is Garth 2013, at least I think, um, when they compared a couple different groups for a period. And the group with a much larger intentional surplus didn't gain significantly more strength or uh, muscle mass, but they did gain five times the fat mass. So those are kind of the the, the ranges I use and I suggest faster rates for people who have a lower training age or further from their ceiling, uh, but they're in the, the realm of like 1% of your body weight per month This kind of like standardized recommendation. And then maybe a little lower, a little higher depending on the individual.
0: Cool. Uh, Mike, is there anything you want to add to that or any different and kind of summarize your perspective on it?
2: Yeah. I am like very skeptical of Eric's
1: upcoming study because you know, who's funding these sorts of things and <laughs> what do they have to gain? You know, actually we do have funding. From, Follow uh, the money. <laughs> you know, the best that's part sure is. is, so we actually have multiple funding sources. Uh, that's how in deep we are uh, to, to the man uh, or, the, or the men or, and the women too. I think they're larger organizations. So Legion Athletics is funding us to do this um, primarily. And then we also have some assistive funding from renaissance periodization no, so
2: never heard of that company but all i've heard about it is bad <laughs> did you know that they actually make weapons as their primary source of income
1: wow do you support war there because that
2: what i'm hearing from you
1: uh i mean that's the only logical conclusion based yeah. on what you just said
2: yeah. anyway, i'll let that critique speak for itself i don't mean I, you know um but on a serious note super highly anticipated study that's going to be super fucking awesome um and like eric said there's really really is a dearth of evidence that directly examining this stuff and particularly on folks to which this applies the most sort of uh, people who are intermediate not necessarily advanced i just i just want some real good data on intermediates you know like two to three years to six or seven years of lifting good hard lifting folks that follow a diet train hard um a lot of the stuff like uh, so for example some of the studies on um They'll take regular athletes in one season, a volleyball ball player, a soccer player, something like that. And they'll overfeed them by a pretty aggressive amount of calories. And the other group gets a pretty reasonable surplus. And they do like the, their, their resistance training is in the context of sport training as well. So already the anabolic signaling is not going to be maximized. And also the resistance training total volumes are usually just again, very unimpressive in many of these studies. It's like, Jesus, you're barely doing anything. Of course, you're getting super fat if you load up on calories like crazy. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of by no means clear how dedicated they are to training, how, sort of, how much they're actually doing. And uh, you get some info from these studies that's just a very good start, but it may not be super informative uh, and, uh, to make like really, really good, solid recommendations. Uh, with that being said, I think it's, it's very clear that as you get to very high levels of calorie intake uh, surplus, the ratio of muscle to fat gained starts to become interesting in so far as that it becomes just kind of like i'm just going to get fat and that's the plan um it, every single analysis i've seen there is still an advantage to raw muscle gain the more calories someone eats the more muscle gain they get um but the incremental uh, bonus with doubling calories is sometimes like you get a tenth more muscle gain which is a real bad deal you're going to have to diet that fat off at some point um that being said, I think there's a middle ground there where trading off a little bit of extra fat gain for some decent muscle gain was worth it because fundamentally fat loss is so much easier than muscle gain. It occurs on such shorter time frames. And we used to, and Eric can probably speak more about this. He's a very, very adept at not just a history of bodybuilding, but the history of thinking about training. I think maybe 10 years ago, we used to think that muscle loss was something that just was always like on the lookout. There's always at risk for muscle loss but ever since the sort of foundational stuff on my nuclear domain ceiling, satellite cell integration, muscle loss is, is just a little bit more difficult than we thought, or put another way, you've got to really mess some stuff up to get a lot of muscle loss. And even if you do that, the reconstitution of muscle mass after that, so long as you've had it for a while, it's actually quite rapid. So there's a little bit of an argument uh, to say, maybe we shouldn't be super duper crazy conservative or try to limit fat gains. Maybe we should shoot for like a pretty like decent middle road of fat gains, real good muscle gains take, you know, four to six weeks or eight weeks at the end of that phase, whatever, maybe after a little break diet off the fat and then we're back to square one. And the sort of total muscle gain per unit time is higher with that scenario than if we just super scoot on the low end. And that's very individual specific. Some people just are just not going to gain the extra fat. They just don't want any part of it. Sometimes the competitors have shows close together and that's completely out of the picture because they're in time for that sort of thing. But with all that being said and considered, um, I think, that my rates of muscle gain or rates of weight gain per week that I think are, are decent is anything between roughly 0.25% per week, which reflects Eric's 1% per month um, and all the way to 0.5% per week. And at 0.5, like that's a pretty fucking meat and potatoes weight to gain. And you got to have some pretty good conditions working on your behalf and or make a good argument that you need that rapidity of weight gain to actually do something. Uh, it's not for everyone. Uh, But I think that anywhere between 0.25 to 0.5 is reasonable. I think you start exceeding 0.5, start going to that 1% per week, and that just starts to be, and I've done a lot of those mass phases, and I got super fine fat, not a whole lot else. The thing is that I got lots of muscle out of it, but you get so fat so fast that you find yourself at 24% body fat in like eight weeks, and you're like, shit, my mass phase is over. I think an eight-week mass phase is all hunky-dory, but it probably doesn't do a whole lot as far as letting you really retain a lot of muscle. So in the end, I think 0.25 to 0.5 is decent. I think when folks get I, I think you know, point two is fine, 0.15% per week is fine. I think when you when you get lower than that, there starts to be a measurement problem where you're not even sure if you're gaining at all. And then you might just be recomping for two or three months, which is cool, but especially if you're advanced you know, recomping doesn't work for advancing individuals to any extent that would be considered like a check mark. And then at some point it's like, well, you pissed away two or three months because you have like uh, the humidity in the air changed because the seasons changed and all of a sudden you're holding a little bit more body water just than usual. Your hormones take a while to reset. And all of a sudden you're like, oh I've been gaining weight. You actually haven't. So I think there should be um at least a detectable version of say so, uh, to put this another way, I hear folks will alter their calories, They're like, yeah, I'm not gaining too so long well uh, 2000 calories, I'm going to go to 2, 000, uh, twenty-five calories a day. Like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, you got to do at least 50 calorie increments, probably 100 calorie increments as your basis of change, just so you know you're having a meaningful i
0: And with that, Mike, do you, like Eric, skew to the slower end of the rate of gain for more advanced individuals, or do you not use that as the, the skew? Do more so use a different way to kind of whether or not you push more assertively or less assertively? I know, it's a smooth range anyway. Yeah, no,
2: no, yeah. So that's a very good question. I actually don't know the answer to that question uh, because there are potentially two ways in which this occurs. Individuals who gain muscle slower for whatever reason need to not push the pace as much because they'll just get really fat and not a whole lot of muscle. On the other hand, especially this argument could potentially make for more advanced individuals that they need that much more real a clear anabolic signaling of high magnitude that is pervasive in order to wake them from their sort of static quiescent state of not getting more jacked. So if you're more advanced, you may need a sort of more extreme stimulus, both on the training side, and on the diet side, for example, with training, if someone who is a beginner, you know, they say, hey, how much uh, should I train to gain muscle? You're like, oh, fucking barely, and you'll be fine. And as they get more advanced, you're like, you're going to have to disturb homeostasis a bit more. And when someone's at Eric Helms's level, when they've been training for years and years drug-free, I mean, Eric's got to do some serious fucking work in the gym. This is anything short of that's not going to progress him anymore, right? So... I think at that point, there's at least some argument, some tentative possibility that you've got to really put an exclamation mark on anything you do to take yourself out of your settling points. Uh, And that might just come with the side effect of like, look, if as an advanced person, you want to put on muscle mass, that means you're going to have to do mass phases that add up to several years instead of several months. You may have to take yourself way far out of your body fat range that you would prefer to be in. But but people always want these solutions that aren't really solutions by making tons of trade-offs. They say, well, I'm advanced, but I never want to get above 50% body fat, or I never want to mass for longer than three months. And I want to mass at 0.1% per per month or something. How do I do it? You're just going to get fuck all of nothing. And yeah, you look cool all the time, but you don't make changes. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the argument is you should go slower, and that's a very sensible argument. To prevent excess backing, because you're just shooting for a moon that's not there anymore. Or should you go at the same speed or even faster than usual and just just take the just take the uh, the bullet to the face on that one and at least come out of it with some decent muscle? Gain. I hope that makes sense to you guys. I, I would love to hear your opinions on on that and if there's any very clear argument against that other possibility of like a superlative stimulant.
1: No, I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. I just don't think we just don't know. Um, like I wondered. Does a larger surplus in a highly advanced person, like if we did some mechanistic studies to look at signaling and stuff like that, would it actually be higher? Because we just don't know, man. Like uh I um I was thinking back to my like so I am now I'm gonna rely on anecdote because that's what we got. Thinking back to my own recent experience where um I took basically two months of 2016 all the way through uh, all of 2017. So we're talking like 14, 15 months to gain about 15 pounds. And that's, that's like not fast, but it's also not slow. It was definitely measurable. And that was, and I did put on body fat, but it's also the first time I've made noticeable muscle gain in, in a while. Um, where I kind of say, like, right, I finished my, my PhD data collection. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. I have the time to train six days a week again, and I'm going to eat until I'm full all the time and we're going to get pizza once a week kind of thing. So, um, and that was, uh, yeah, I, 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 wouldn't say it transformed my physique, but in that year and a half, I think I made more progress than the last three. So. And what was your
2: stuff like in the last
1: three? What was it just your inability to train a lot? Uh, or were you
2: pushing maybe slower rates of gain in the last three years or something?
1: I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I was keeping myself in the ninety-three kilo weight class for powerlifting or ninety-four kilo class for weightlifting. Um, I was unable to train at certain points with the kind of volume needed just from time constraints from PhD, um, and yeah, I think that those are the main ones. And also, I was going through periods where I was training very specifically for for powerlifting or weightlifting to where uh, getting in the the accessory exercises and the volume needed uh, wasn't really
0: uh, feasible. So, yeah. Yeah, my own experience with using either or has been just allowing myself to be a little bit more assertive and not being worried about weight gain, having that kind of approach of not trying to attempt to gain at the least rate of fat gain, has allowed me and allowed clients who maybe struggle with the idea of allowing fat to come on just to actually get more out of their gaining phases, um, whether or not it's just that mindset shift or whether it's down to the fact we're allowing for a faster rate of gain and that's leading to more muscle mass. Um, I'm not completely sure, but it's, it's definitely helped in those scenarios.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen similar with, with my clients too. Um, yeah, but it's, I, I don't know that I've ever pushed an advanced person intentionally faster than say 1% of their body weight per month. Um, and yeah, we're, like I was thinking about it, like here's Mike's suggested rate of weight gain and here's mine. They're not that different. Um, I know Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. You used to recommend faster rates of weight gain a couple of years back. Is that accurate? Yeah. Like four yeah. or five years back. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I learned the hard way that that was not a great idea.
2: Now uh, people can use those faster rates of gain. The thing is, is at the time I was working populations like, uh, D one, uh, football players, that never really weight trained in high school properly if they could do weight gain rates like that and gain like actually get leaner <laughs> so I, w- yeah. I i was trying to make the recommendations more inclusive um, mm-hmm. and uh it went a little too far to where i think man this is one of these things where you say it can be up to this amount and everyone automatically assumes this is the best amount because it's the highest yes and then they get fat and shit goes to hell so uh, but but that granted i was wrong to a considerable extent in that advice um it still had the good range in it but i had a lot of a top end which
1: was too high for sure yeah i i bring that up not to just be like see you're an idiot but um find <laughs> like, a fine reason to bring it up <laughs> yeah you're an idiot no <laughs> so i man i reattempted tr- true bulking so many times in my career i did it uh, I remember when I first started lifting, I got from 175 pounds, so like 80 kilos, to uh, 190, 195, so which is like uh, 88 or something like that, real quick. Um, and within six months to a year, if I recall correctly. And then I just couldn't see the scale move in any kind of way that I expected it to. So I started eating everything and then got fat. And then I would diet and then I would, I did that, I, I got fat probably four or five times before I was like, this is not working, this is, not, this is doing nothing. Um, and one of the things that I, I do think about now is that a lot of the times um, we have a more, what I would describe normal relationship with food when we're in a gaining phase. Uh, I think I, I counsel a lot of my clients to, to trend away from tracking macros, maintain a lot of their habits, um, but primarily just look at the scale when needed. Um, and when you go to a cut, you typically, my fitness pal starts getting used more frequently, the food scale comes out. And I don't necessarily want my clients that frequently to uh, rely on external sources of, of feedback to know um, where their their uh, their nutrition should be, their body weight should be. Because I think that can cause problems uh, in the long run. Um, I do think you can do many cut phases by just being a little less full with each meal, and using internal cues, especially after you've gotten uh, relatively high in body fat, because you just don't want to eat at all, and that's not hard not to do. Um, but yeah, I think that that is one other concern that has popped into my head lately as to why I partially prefer longer periods of gaining as well, uh, just to give more time to to kind of resensitize that awareness of your own body signals, if you will.
0: Cool. I think. So I I just want to actually cover this because there might be some females listening to the channel and I I don't know, oftentimes these things are different. Both of you quoted percentages anyway, and obviously most women are smaller, but do you change anything in regards to females? Do you half the percentage or anything there? I don't. I think I find they they scale quite nicely for women.
2: Yeah, the cool thing about a percent is that women are smaller on average, so a percent takes care of that uh, generally. Um, and then again, the same question comes up is if they don't gain weight as easily, should you just smash them more or should you put in less? I don't know. Uh, you know, there could be an argument for a slightly lower percent when we're talking about the bottom range being you know 0.15 or 0.10 percent per week. This is giving any other advice to women is just uh, untenable from a measurement perspective. What are you going to do say, you know, in four months, I want you to gain a pound. like. I can't even, I can't reliably tell you I've gained a pound at any point, (laughs) that's just not within the average Walmart scale doesn't do a pound error, you know, like who who the hell knows. So, so I think those those general ranges uh, definitely apply to females, but you know, maybe uh, there's fewer females that can do a 0.5 situation. Um, But uh, that being said, I think it's just worth noting maybe uh, during this podcast that a lot of females, uh, more than males on average, though this affects both sexes, tend to be really resistant to weight gain because of a variety of psychological factors that accompany seeing the scale move up, seeing close fit a little bit differently. And at RP, we have to do a considerable, uh, considerably more to female clients to sort of coax them into actually being okay with gaining weight. A lot of people will say, I wanna gain muscle. I say, okay, well, here's the most powerful way to gain muscle is to make sure you start out pretty lean, and then you gain weight and they go, okay, pretty lean, got it. gain weight. What are you talking about? They're like, well, the way new things work is that the new things have weight. So you have to increase your weight to have new things. Like we can't really make a skyscraper taller in any effective way by not bringing in extra bricks from somewhere. And, you know, that sort of thing is like kind of a shock to people or a lot of females, you know, they weigh like 120 pounds. And I'll say, I want to be like jacked. I want to look like a figure girl. But like, well, all those girls weigh 135. And they're like 135. Like, yeah, they all mass to 160. Like 160. And you're like, well, okay, I shouldn't have said all that up front. Let's try <laughs> to get to 130. See how you feel. And another, another cool reminder for females is, look, you know, if you gain at like the 0.25 percent per week, geez, you know, one pound a month, no one's even going to notice that. You're not even going to notice that. Like, you know, look, damn near the same month to month, it's going to be so slow that you'll be used to your look. And if six or eight months later, you find that you're a little pudgy, you're like two months easy diet away from getting back to as lean as you ever were and keeping three or four pounds of muscle with you. Like, it's not the end of the world. We're not talking about becoming Job the hut. but I think that reminder has to be thrown out there because a lot of folks, man, are just not interested in gaining weight or any fat whatsoever. And they're, they're looking to do any kind of quirks where they can avoid it. And, you know, if you build a program on quirks, you're going to get a quirky program that doesn't work all that great.
0: Brilliant. So I think that was well covered and I don't know if we want to go into, I think you may have covered it quite extensively on a podcast in terms of, obviously we can't just gain forever, even on a slower approach, there's going to be a point at which we need to cut it off um, just because we're going to become way over fat um, and not healthy. Do you guys have any different perspectives to what was outlined on Abel's podcast? As any have your views changed since then? Uh, I like to, uh, to kind of kill the, the P ratio, what I consider
1: a myth, uh, at least in, in the kind of reasonable ranges where people to talk about it. Uh, I think that's valuable because I know a lot of people who are like, well, I can't do a mass phase until I get to 8% body fat as a guy or like 16% as a as a female. And I think that's actually quite harmful to, to have that perspective. Um, so just kind of the, a uh, little bit of a research history lesson, the whole P ratio and a lot of Forbes' work, it's all based in people who are either untrained and not exercising or if they are exercising, it's not resistance training. And the idea is that uh, the correct observation that you take naturally lean people or people who are at a steady state leanness or a steady state of high body fat and you overfeed them. Uh, People higher in body fat gain disproportionately more body fat. People who are naturally lean, starting lean uh, gain disproportionately more uh, lean body mass. But these are not people who are lifting weights. um, And, the concern about insulin resistance among people who lift weights and are constantly having substrates going in and out of their muscle because They're depleting it from lifting. Um, I can almost guarantee you that unless you have a family history of insulin resistance, uh, you are not insulin resistant if you lift weights multiple times per week. So uh, the nutrient partitioning affects any kind of um, protein resistance at a given body fat percentage levels in someone who lifts weights. I think the, the body fat percentage where it becomes a physiologic problem, it's pretty damn high. Um, and we've got some data to back that up. And we've also got super heavyweights who are stronger than, than 120s. And we have sumo wrestlers who carry more lean body mass than any other athlete on the planet. So I think, uh, I think the, the game changes a lot when you're lifting weights. But I totally agree that you probably don't want to start a, uh, like a muscle gain phase higher than roughly 15 percentage body fat for a, a guy, or roughly say twenty-three percent for a gal, um, and but that just because it gives you runway, you know, and then a guy can push it up to close to twenty percent, and then it back down. Gal just under thirty percent, it back down as well. Um, and yeah, I think trying to to push those limits more just becomes problematic from your goal is probably to either if you're recreational and but very serious, uh, it's to have a certain look. Or or you have a certain level of performance, which either you won't have or won't be impressive at the body weight you get to relative to being a little lighter and probably just damn near just as strong. Um, And if you're a competitor, it's it's, it's all got to go at some point. There's no way around it. Or you've got to make a weight class cutoff. So unless you are super heavyweight and you don't mind walking around at a higher body fat percentage, then you're going to have to figure out some logistical issues
0: around, around just putting on too much body fat. Go for it, Mike, if you've got any kind of thoughts on that as well.
2: Sure. Um, I think that the P-ratio stuff is definitely missing a real big piece of of direct uh, experimental design where you compare individual subjects to themselves and uh, track uh, progress with relationship to body fat. It's going to take more than a few well-designed studies to really nail that down and, and give us exactly how much... Difference we would expect, um, if any, because you know one real interesting observation about the comparing lean people versus fat people. Well, maybe the reason people are those people are fat is because they have really shitty muscle building genetics and really good fat gain genetics, and the reason the lean people are lean is the opposite. And of course, when you feed them lean motherfuckers, they're going to gain a shitload of muscles. This is only fat all that well, um, and vice versa. So we could just be seeing a comparison of individuals and trying to infer a comparison. Because the real pertinent thing is an individual at various points in time in their own development, that's what we want to infer. It's difficult to infer that in a strict statistical statistical sense from comparison of, of two different individuals. Um, that being said, there is some pretty good physiological rationale of why incrementally higher amounts of body fat um, at uh, anywhere from contest shape to roughly 10% for males, uh, incrementally higher rates of, of amounts of body fat probably making more anabolic, uh for muscle and they're less for fat and then roughly between 10 and sort of 15-ish to 18 or something uh they uh or sort of they and then north of 15 to 18 the metabolic you have probably just at first to a very small extent to not have the best muscle to fat ratios um insulin resistance is a spectrum variable it can be cataloged on an index it's not a yes or no um, and uh, the amount of estrogen uh, produced in your body is also a spectrum variable, with some estrogen actually being potentiated for muscle growth and strength improvements. But excessive amounts being uh, contradictory to that, especially just uh, they don't so much stop you from gaining a lot of muscle as they just gain you a shitload more fat if you have a lot of estrogen. Like if you have an estrogen heavy steroid cycle, for example, but when you take a shitload of D-Ball and Android at the same time, you're not going to get not muscular, but you're going to get super fat too. Um, so that sort of problem kind of repeats itself if you're fat enough to get a, a lot of uh, aromatization happening. And, uh, you know, a high body fats causes uh, increased levels of uh, systemic inflammation, so on and so forth. It's probably not very congruent to muscle gain, et cetera. Now, and again, that's a spectrum variable where you know, inflammation is not a zero or, or one kind of thing. It's in between. So uh, with that said, because it's in between, there's like a sort of a, even if the, if the let's say the P-ratio stuff turns out to be valid, which I think it probably will be, but it could just turn out to be total bullshit uh, uh, we always have to keep an open mind to that, but let's say it turns out to be valid. The P ratio is a spectrum variable because it's based on spectrum variables. So how's it going to look? Well, it's going to say people ask this question um, uh, to myself all the fucking time. I'm just being an asshole. as a joke, guys. I love your questions. And it's not a bad question, but it's one of those things that's phrased as I say, oftentimes as a, you know, a fear based uh, one zero cutoff question where it's like, okay. Can you tell me the exact body fat at which I will literally wake up as Jabba the Hutt? Like, I'll have a mastery of the Huttese language. I'll do all the honor of <laughs> trade just Monday. And Sunday, I was Ronnie Coleman. Uh, what happened, right? So it, it turns out that, you know, it's my reasonable estimate, I think, or my attempted reasonable estimate is, you know, uh, if you get uh, anywhere from 10 to 15% fat, you're fucking golden. Don't worry about a thing. If you get uh, north of 15% fat to roughly, you know, let's say 17.5, I think you're fucking golden. You're nothing to worry about. The only first-tier concern there is like if you're going to compete pretty soon, you probably don't want to go north of 15 as a male because like fuck, how much are you going to diet off? It's just a huge pain in the ass. Unless you do a two-phase diet, which is cool if you plan for it, but if you didn't, like if you have a show coming up within 16 weeks, don't get north of 15%. You're just causing yourself a huge pain in your own ass. Um, and then. Up to 20% I think is totally fucking reasonable for most people that don't want to compete right away. And it is really, really good muscle fat ratio gains. And one of the huge benefits of that is going from 10% all the way to 20%, especially with a slow rate of weight gain, you're gonna have to take some maintenance phases in there somewhere because you're gonna have to just, there's too much training fatigue that's built up irrespective of your diet. Um, It allows you these really baller long-term mass gain phases where you build a shitload of training momentum get super fucking strong and uh and the strength is not the good thing the strength is reflective of the fact that you're gaining a lot of muscle we're starting to get inklings in the in the data that we've sort of suspected that muscle gain is actually a really long-term process i use the analogy it's akin to building a skyscraper floor versus pouring sand in a sand pile like it might take weeks to actually integrate any kind of muscle but if you stop training after weeks it's all preparatory hypertrophy up until then and it just goes away and it's like it never happened uh so it, it, it's a really good thing to be able to gain from 10% to 20%. What I hate to see is people are like gain from 10% to 12% pitch their first little loaf of fat and they're like, we're fucking done. time to go back to 10%. It's really fucking insanity. So make up to 20%. is totally cool unless you're a competitor and then you might want to go lower unless you plan for it. Um, arguments for males for massing to 25% start to become a little bit more tenuous, uh, especially if you're a physique athlete. If you're power if you old maybe uh, weight class considerations, there. if you're a super heavy, fuck it. it. gives a shit. You're the man. You know, smoke your sausage, cigars or whatever super heavyweights do and live life. But it's one of those things like, you know, north of 20%. One thing that does has happened to most individuals is physical de- deformation of the skin. You get a growth of skin cells. When you lose weight, the skin sags. Not a great look, not a great feel. Um, a lot of times, especially around the chest area and stuff, it's a weird look. Even if you die down sometimes, it's still a weird look. Um, the, the health trade-offs of being north of 20% as a male and north of 33%-ish as a female, and they start to be not very concerning, but just uh, uninteresting. It's like, oh, why am I trading this off at all? I don't know, Eric, if you've ever been north of 20%, but like you walk up a flight of stairs and you're like, uh, uh. You're like well, I thought I was an athlete. What the fuck am I doing? So, uh, and then, you know, the the diet return to get rid of all that is really painful, so on and so forth. So, I think that my my current position is that anywhere between 10% for males, anywhere from 10 to 20% for males, and 15 ish, although I really say more like 17, because as soon as you say 15, females try to go to 13 and they lose a period, that shit happens. So, 15 to 17% for females, all the way up to 30%. um, It's just real good meat, potatoes, massing ranges for most people. And then if you. If you can, we want to go north of that in body fat percentage, there's totally ways to do it in times in which it's good, but you're going to have to make more than a cursory argument of like, duh. Like if someone's like, hey, so I'm asking I'm a 21% currently in their mail. I'm going to 26 and then they ask me five other questions. What I like to see before they ask me five other questions is, can you give me a rationale for why you're massive right now? There are rationales; they're good ones, but I just I just have to see it. You know, it's one of those Mm -hmm. things that it's not selfish. It's like if you're wearing a clown suit and it's a Tuesday and it's not a holiday, like I need a fucking explanation (laughs) as to why you're wearing it now. Now, you know, (laughs) it's
1: right? Exactly, and
2: that's a fine reason. And then I won't ask you any more questions at all. I promise. I'll just run. Hope that makes. sense.
1: I, I largely agree with that, and I, I, Steve. I hope we're not spending too much time on this. Um, I think one of the tough ones too is like, uh, how do you you don't know your body fat percentage? You know, so we we have this body fat percentages have become this thing that we have a, like a cultural idea in in the physical community of what fifteen percent looks like. It's like, you still got abs, but there's not a lot of separation everywhere. Um, and the equivalent for that for women's like low twenties, mid twenties. Um, and then, you know, we see 10% as that point where he looks good on the beach, but he's not shredded or, or she looks really good and has some muscle, maybe a bicep vein, but nothing else, you know, that kind of thing. But if you go get a DEXA or if you actually get your body fat tested versus what we kind of see as the body fat percentage, it's going to be that plus or minus 5%. So it's like, I, uh, I struggle with just giving exact numbers because a, we can't measure it exact. And it's not like you know, so it's kind of like that's why I trend towards being a little more amorphous because we can't know that well. But yeah, I, I largely agree with everything. When I did um, the KaiZen nutrition program that I did with Omar, I I said don't start a, a mass gaining phase if you're over fifteen percent for a male or twenty three percent as a woman. That's kind of my, which is essentially what you just said. So
2: yeah, and like I think there's like. As I mentioned, there's even exceptions to that. So, for example, uh, you know, someone, let's say, has made a, sort of a journey from 30% fat on train. Yeah, that's a really down good To point. like 15%, they died to their fucking nuts off, and they're like, "What do I do now?" Like. I know I can't gain yet, and I'm like, no, mm, well, you can gain, and like, well, what do I do? I'm like, I'm just gain real slow, real conservative, to 20%. I'm like, fuck, but I'll be 20%, I feel like I'm fat again. You're like, nonsense, you're way more jacked. And then your next, the fat loss phase, you can cut to 13%, and then gain back to 18, and then cut to 11, and then you're fucking golden, you're in the zone. So it's one of those things where it's like, it's not, people like like to take these things as religious practices. It's just like, yeah. the, it's a really, really incrementally just just a little bit of a better trade-off there, and if you can work towards the great zone rate, and there's also Genetic stuff there, like some people just sit around seven percent all the time, fucking nothing, and they don't have to go beyond twelve percent in a mass phase because they're just lucky piece of shit. Uh, and other people, it's going to take them heaven and earth to get below twenty percent. Does that mean they're never going to gain muscle on intentional phase? Man, that's nonsense, right? Like, imagine yeah. if Brian Shaw said he could never go below fifteen percent uh, with the gained weight, he would have never been the world's strongest man. That's like really insane. Yeah. And then like, to, to reflect, I think Eric's um, thinking is really spot on with like. The, the amorphous nature of the uh, body fat scale basically look if you're ripped as fucking shit you're good to mass if you got some semblance of abs and veins you can make the cutoff. either you stop massing or you're still good to mass when you've lost your abs and you sort of have pretend veins you know if you're a physique athlete you should probably stop if you're a powerlifter weightlifter it might still make sense under some circumstances and if you look like an off-season strong man who hasn't trained for three months they probably shouldn't look like at any time and probably fat loss is great and don't mass then. but that's kind of my cutoffs you know if you still got some abs and veins going you could fucking mass. when they're all gone like when someone comes up to me and they sort of this happens all the time they come up to me and they pull their shirt off right but uh when people like, you know like people ask me like at conferences they go like should i gain mass or cut i literally just go let me see your abs they pull up and if if there's like some outlines there and some little shit going on i'm like yeah you could do either one right? Sometimes they pull them up and it's like stride at six pack. I'm like, what the fuck are you asking me for? And then another one is like, you pull it up and it was like, you could like pinch a fucking gnarly, like there's just nothing going on there except body fat. You're like, you could mass, you could, but maybe be a little bit productive and better for your psychological health or whatever to just, you know, maintain for a bit, get stronger, do, do another maybe eight to 12 weeks of just slow, steady, nothing crazy dieting. Just a bit leaner, get in that zone where you start to see some shape to your abs, and then you can totally mass
0: after that. I really like this discussion. I want to dig into it more because I think the listeners are probably really enjoying it as well. We might just have to no, 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 no. get no, you guys we on again. Macros now. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go to that, something I've just been thinking of, and I have a couple of things in my mind, but I want to ask this one first is if we are pushing, considering we've never been maybe obese or quite high in body fat. Are there any concerns about going to those higher percentages and gaining potentially new fat cells? That's something people hear thrown around. Is that really a thing if maybe you've never been up to 20% body fat and then you push a mass all the way there? Are you now holding on to new body fat cells you may have not had before? And is that an implication you need to be concerned about? Probably not.
1: I think that's another funny thing we do in the bodybuilding community is we talk about... 20% 20% body fat as a male, like it's equivalent to having a 30 BMI. Actually, you might have a 30 BMI if you have enough muscle mass as a bodybuilder, but we discuss like getting above the teens as being equivalent to obesity. Um, and it's not, <laughs> I think that that's, that's the big one. Like, um, you grab your average person who does not look overweight off the street. who's a guy, good chance. He's between 18 to, to like 23% body fat, you know? Um, and then you can add eight to that number if it's a gal. So I, I I don't have data to support this, but I would be surprised if gaining at the rates we're talking about, because there's, there's also a magnitude and rate of weight gain component to whether you're actually creating like new fat cells. Um, it, I'd be very surprised if we took the uh, the rates of weight gain we're talking about and the body fat limits we're talking about, and that that was creating these, uh, scenarios where it makes it harder to get leaner next time or easier to gain body fat. And I think probably one of the strongest anecdotal pieces of evidence we have against that is that in my experience, um, most competitors get better at dieting over time. They don't have this supposed yo-yo effect where every season it's a harder and harder fight. I don't see that start to happen until they become like late stage masters competitors, where it's like all of a sudden there's. There's true hormonal changes, you know, like they're approaching menopause as a woman or uh, their baseline testosterone levels as a guy have actually fallen substantially compared to when they're competing in their 20s. Uh, they just can't train or do as much cardio because joint pain, stuff like that. Um, and uh, like, man, like it, it, a commonality. If you look at like the Masters 1 division in most uh, bodybuilding shows, those guys are getting more lean than, than like, say, the novice class you know, they're, they're, they know what they're doing. They've dialed their shit in. And I think if there was truly this scenario where, uh, especially with masters competitors, cause they've been around a while when the bulk cut was standard. Um, I bet if you asked more than half of them, they have pushed their body fats up quite high and done it fast. And they've been on the seafood diet many times. Um, so I figured if the first half of my career was, was that, and I was in the two thousands, these guys are doing it when I was a kid. So, um, I would be really surprised if it was, a problem that mattered because it doesn't seem to matter, at least in the drug-free folks who I I look at. So that's my take on it. I don't know. What do you think, Mike?
2: I think if you start to get to the level of uh, skin deformation, you're certainly putting on fat cells almost by definition because there has to be more of them to make that much more skin. And then those folks tend to uh, struggle a little bit more, not with the yo-yo effect exactly, but with uh, it's very easy for them to get back to their old fat ways because they have more fat cells, so on and so forth. Um, but I think that anything in the under twenty percent range, for sure, for males under twenty-seven percent for females, is not something that the, even if it happens at a small physiological level, it's just not going to be a real-world concern. Um, it, it, it's one of those things like, oh, I hate to talk smack. No, I don't. Um, I think it's like a, something that came out of like the body recomposition forums, like Lyle must have mentioned it in like half an article at some point that you gain you fat cells when you gain mass. And it just paralyzed with fear a ton of his followers, very well meaning people that were like, there's no way I can gain any fucking weight. It's just fat cells ad. I'm pretty sure I'm going to wake up speaking Hatties again, knowing the trade routes. And um, oh, it's oh, just, oh, oh, oh. oh Olo no, choco. here it comes, New Zealand, only. Um, so <laughs> if he like, says he that, Eric, says you're, you're, yeah, you're <laughs> fucked, man. People are looking for you. He knows your location. So there'll be bounty hunters soon. <laughs> so in any case, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know, like the gain in fat cell stuff is certainly not taken out of data on bodybuilders or or any kind of realistic transformation. I mean, if it's theoretically possible It happens in animals but usually you got to get pretty fucking fat to do it and you don't have to get fat to do it at all but to do it in a way that matters a ton you got to get pretty fat and like eric said you know i remember at one point i was afraid of exactly this i was like dude if i keep doing these masking phases i'll just get into harder and harder to get lean and as i competed more and as i got leaner and leaner even without competition i think getting lean is so much easier than it ever used to be and where are these fat cells to push back against um, it just never showed up so even if it happens I just don't think it's a huge reward concern for people. Matt, nah, if you're trying to gain 25%, 30% as a male, 40% body fat, I think you're going to run into some problems there. But there's going to be other problems too that magnify the situation.
0: Cool. And the other question I had, and that was brilliantly covered, by the way, guys, and the important implication that Eric said about rate of gain, it's not like you're going from 10% to 20% in like a few months. Um, so no, I think that was really well covered. The only other thing I had was... When we're considering, obviously, um, sumo wrestlers, for example, have that really high fat-free mass index, is there any rationale between over kind of pushing your body fat levels actually purposely a a bit higher, letting yourself get into that kind of higher body fat percentage because we know holding onto muscle tissue can be relatively easier. So you actually, is there any rationale actually pushing body weights up um, at some stage rather than kind of always staying a bit leaner all the time and maybe we're holding back some potential progress there? I don't know if that made sense. Yeah,
1: I, I think we were, we were, this is kind of what we talked about, you know, theoretically before, like, you know, there, it may make, you might have to get uncomfortable if you want to make late stage gains. I, you know, Berto's doing this right now. It's a good example of anyone who's aware about what Alberto Nunez is doing. He's, he's probably a legit 15% body fat now. He carries it well because he's got veins that are like barely underneath his skin and, uh, and he's a muscular dude with nice shape, but, um, when you actually watch him get leaner, you're like, "Oh, there's more! Oh, he got leaner! Oh my God, he got leaner! Oh my God, he got leaner!" Like there's there's still body fat left, you know. Uh, and I think um, I think he'll probably push it close to twenty percent, uh, and when he gets up to around two hundred pounds, which is that's, that's a substantial weight gain for somebody who competes at one sixty, you know. But um, at the same time, it's it's not crazy, you know, that he doesn't get to the point of skin deformation. He doesn't get to the point where we're pushing these crazy high body fat percentages, like Mike was saying, like 30, 35 or 40% body fat. Um, And I think some of that's just that um, we have this skewed perception of what is a high body fat percentage um, with this kind of idea of, yeah, like off season should be 10%. And I'm like, you know, a legit 10%, some people get on stage like that, you know, they don't do well, but they, and they shouldn't get on stage. Mike's pointing to himself, I've been on stage at comparable. My competitive history is a total fucking disaster. I don't even talk
2: about competition anymore. Until I actually step on stage, lean, I'm just shutting the fuck up. man.
1: I always have. Uh... <laughs> but the uh, that that's not uncommon, and it's not like it's not easy necessarily to uh, to get to 10 percent body fat. So I just I've just consulted with too many people who they never do a mass gain besides. This binge eating response of trying to get down to be lean enough to do a mass gain, and I'm just like, like let's just let's just stop the insanity. Sometimes, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with with being with your mass gains being from 15 to 20 percent.
0: Absolutely nothing, and having that take you know four months or something like that. I think that's very reasonable. Cool. I don't know if uh, Mike's got any opinions on this. And yeah, I. I think hopefully a lot of our audience do follow alberto but um he's doing a great job of sh- sharing this and I'm, I'm kind of following a similar path to him because we also both competed last season as well so it's really kind of interesting following him and um also our two different approaches i'm essentially doing a little bit more of a go up come down go up come down uh, whereas he's just been linear to date but um, i'm almost catching back up on body weight again so um we're both hit probably 200 pounds at a similar point <laughs> nice. alberto. Versus Steve,
2: (laughs) Madison Square Garden,
0: bare knuckles fighting. Fuck
2: this bodybuilding shit. I want to see raw energy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's cool is we're both going to be in uh, Texas next month. And it may be because I'm in this like uh, I'm maintaining actually probably legit close to 10% before I start my diet um, in January. And he's on the way up. He might actually weigh more than me in Austin, which is probably the first time I think that's happened. happened i don't think it's ever happened before so
2: smash a bunch of burritos and gatorade like the hour before you see him step on the scale and be like get this fucking scale out of my face no
1: i'm not gonna mess up my uh my, my prep he's gonna wake up with uh, like a lipo uh thing that's <laughs> happening because i'm just like sucking out of his lower back yeah exactly well you don't have to mess up your prep. let me do, I a know kind of muted this eric a little quick free education for
2: you there's a thing called intermittent fasting where you can have a shitload of burritos and Gatorade in the morning, but then you don't eat anything forever and then you are lean again. So you don't have to fuck your prep up, man. You lost me. There's tons of great bodybuilders that do fasting, including, you know, those really good bodybuilders that fast all the time. They're great. It's um, just one, one uh, not joke addition is uh, I, I believe, I believe that people in the world that are actually the, have the highest lean body mass uh, total absolute amounts are actually morbidly obese individuals to the tune of 600 to 1,000 pounds body I mean, Now 1,000 pounds, that's the serious fucking mass phase, right? But those folks, you know, at 70% fat <laughs> have 300 pounds of LBM or something totally absurd. So, um, you know, that road to more muscle via more fat never ends. There is not a fat gain that we have ever charted if you gain more fat it actually costs you muscle now there's technically one because you move less if you gain more fat but on the physiological side of purely just hormonal stuff it doesn't but there's no thing so that that idea of let's get sumo wrestler big to put on muscle has to be traded off with how long how hard will the fat loss be how much skin deformation will there be how much hormonal fucking there will be Yada, 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 yada. And and the trade-off past 20, 25% for males, 30, 35% for females just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Although if you want, and and that's the temptation, that's what's called the dreamer bulk or whatever. Like if you're a super heavyweight, just keep gaining weight. You will keep getting stronger, I promise, except for your double. It's going to go straight to hell. But your bench will go up, your squat will go up, you'll be the man. It's just, it's one of those things where, yes, there is a lesson to take away that at times you can eat a lot of food and get a little heavier than you wanted, and it will cost you. It will benefit you more muscle than you would have gained before. But that benefit has to be traded against the cost. If it's worth it, great. If it's in your plant, great. If it's not, then you know it's going to be a road to nowhere. Um, and another thing, real quick, is depends on where your settling point is and what kind of natural eater you are. You may have to get uncomfortably full on purpose, even to maintain the Eric Helms rates of gain. So if you're at point one five percent. Per, per month, which was, you know, supposedly easy. Like once you weigh 240, and your body doesn't want to be anything over 200. To get to 245, it could mean heaven and earth. Like for me to get, I gained this past uh, mass phase, I gained from 250 all the way up to 265. It took me like six months to do. Towards the end, pushing to 265, um, I was eating 900 grams of carbs per day, 80 grams of fat and 300 grams of protein. And I switched to almost all liquid meals because I couldn't actually eat fucking solid food. I had one solid food meal a day. Um, Everything else was mass gainer shakes and Gatorade and stuff because I just couldn't eat anymore. I'd look at food and I I forgot why. Like people like pizza, pizza. And there's these commercials of people eating pizza. I'm like, why do people find eating enjoyable? I don't understand. Is there a way to just have friends around without eating? I just forgot why people ate altogether. It was awful. But I was at 0.25 to uh, 0.5% per week. Um, towards the end i was for sure at 0.25 if not lower and i was smashing food in so i think it has to be mentioned that even to maintain the normal weights of gain that are on the low end when you get to all-time biggest weights you're gonna have to push it the thing is most people don't even know what that experience feels like because of what eric said they yo-yo close to stage weight and they say fucking mass game brother i can eat trust me i can eat like shut the fuck up anyone can eat between 3% body fat and 10% body fat. Everyone's an eating machine. You're not fucking special. If you are at your highest weight ever and you want to go five pounds above that, that can take, especially if your weight's higher and you're not a big eater, that can take heaven and earth even to get those low rates. So it's one of those things that I think there's a ton to be said. It's absolutely uh, super important to mention a more intuitive connected form of eating that just eat plenty of food stay nice and full and you'll gain all the weight it works for 95 percent of everyone in every case there's a five percent there that would especially they push to new heights where you're just going to have to smash food on purpose even for those low weights okay do you think that's
1: there's some something for that area absolutely yeah if you have to i i don't think most people need to put on that much weight that they're that uncomfortable um and I may be playing the natty card wrong here, but um, it's not a common experience I see among uh, the, how big naturals might need to push and the, and, the, and the amount of food you might have to eat. Because um, I think, shit, man, like if, like I said, you know, Berto's 5'6", and he's getting up to a peak weight of 200 pounds. There was a time he pushed himself up to 250, and that was an absolute absolute crazy crazy thing he did yeah he back in we're talking early 2000s he was 250 pounds and he was eating eight thousand calories a day and this is drug free too and he did well it didn't look good
2: (laughs) i got to 270 drug free and i'm five six and it it probably you understand oh yeah it probably chopped five years off my life at least (laughs) Um, (laughs) i got more muscular but was it worth it probably not i should have stopped at 240 or something
1: yeah, that's exactly what he would say. He was like, if I could go back, go to stop. He says 210. Yeah, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. I, yeah, he was like, I didn't get any stronger after that except for just like reduced range of motion on pressing, you know? So, yeah.
2: that's a great kind of example of when we talk about like, Steve, to so your question of like, should we strive to be sumo wrestlers sometimes in some cases? The people that have done that don't generally come back and was like, it's fucking worth it, bro. I got so strong. I got so much muscle. Like, they're usually just like, man, I feel like I got 90% of that strength and muscle at 40 pounds lighter. And
1: it was just, yeah.
2: why am I pushing this far? And in the long run, it doesn't make any sense. And talk about skin deformation. I'm sure he's got quite a bit yeah. of that now, so.
1: You'd be surprised, man. He's got this Great beautiful, skin. flexible, silky, uh, he's a- He's laughing, he's a nice, right? Yeah, he is. He can do it lot. That's a cheating.
2: White people's skin just fall apart. You have like, (laughs) look at Steve's vampire ass laughing about that shit. Steve, when's the last time you've seen the sun?
0: (laughs) I just take all the vitamin D. I'm fine. That's it. You're like the
2: sun. That's a vitamin D thing, right? We don't,
0: we don't have that in the UK. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's right. What sun?
0: We have lost the sun. Now it's become winter. As soon as (laughs) November hits, no more sun. (laughs) That's it. Um, something I did want to cover because actually and this will be the last thing because I know um, we're under time but this is very related to what we've been talking about and at the moment it's kind of seems to be a hot topic in the industry and this is kind of talking to insulin sensitivity and I think Berto for example has done a great job of this and I think you guys have done a great job of this and I don't know if we specifically spoke about on the podcast in that you're doing almost everything you can do by staying in these parameters we've talked about and weight training um but there's a lot of ways people try and manipulate maybe different setups in terms of their nutrition on rest days um they manipulate macronutrients um, they might take supplementation and talk about kind of just natural things have you guys do you guys see this as something that we can do or do we is it something that is kind of minutia that maybe we shouldn't be worrying about
1: Uh, it depends on the specific practice, but if I see someone with substantially different uh, calorie intakes on training versus off days, shifts in carbohydrate to fat ratios on training versus off days, uh, glucose disposal agents, and um, I, I eventually I just kind of start to be like, "Give me a break!" Like wh- this, nothing is happening that fast. It doesn't matter that much. You're you're already pretty damn insulin sensitive. You're twenty four shut up. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the angry part of me that gets annoyed by people being OCD because I think they could be focused on other things, but it, de- it depends on what they're actually talking about when and why. For the most part, I think, um, a lot of it's just based on a lack of awareness of what these things do. Like the examples I gave, um, even a relatively high volume bodybuilding workout doesn't burn as many calories as you think. Um, and it's not burning like additional calories. That's not an additional hour to your day that you trained. Like if you went grocery shopping for an hour and then if you did weight training for an hour, we're talking about a 100 to 200 calorie difference. And a lot of times your neat will go down after a hard workout anyway, because you'll just sit around playing video games or watching TV afterwards because it was hard. Um, so I, I'm, I'm unconvinced of, of having vastly different calorie intakes. Maybe slight is fine, but then I don't see the point. Uh, training days versus non-training days. Like Mike said, I think that, uh, just, we, we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that muscle gain is so simple as the rises and falls of muscle protein synthesis It is actual tissue change. And it probably is more complex and takes longer. Um, especially with all the muscle architectural changes that go along with changes in cross sectional area. So, yeah, I, um, if we're talking like a, like a true athlete, not us, uh, fitness athletes or whatever, <laughs> bodybuilding and powerlifting who, who train, you know, maybe one third of what the average true professional athlete does, then yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to think about different energy intakes. But if your goal is to increase your muscle mass and you're training for an hour to an hour and a half, four times per week, I don't know that you need to think much about having multiple calorie intakes or shifting your carb to fat ratio, in my opinion. And then, uh, like I said, like the GDAs, glucose disposal agents, I think you're, things should be working well already uh, if if you're lifting weights and, and following the guidelines we talked about.
0: Mike, have you got any differing opinions on that?
2: I think the uh, most important aspect of insulin sensitivity is the degree of body fat you're carrying. Um, and this is, of course, an a age-independent factor here, but it's not that big. That's true. Uh, the next one is uh, genetics. It could be 10% and type 2 diabetic, uh, just God decided to kick you in the dick on the way out. Shit happens. Um, and uh, unlikely, but possible. Uh, you have some control of that with your body fat, however. You know, whatever genetics you were handed, the leaner you are, the more insulin-sensitive you are. There's another, even on top of leanness, there's another independent factor of physical activity. It's so a degree of physical activity. you have. Per day. There's people that are relatively fat that move around all the time. And even though they eat to compensate, the fact that they're moving all the time Keeps in a sort of a transient, very glucose-mobile state, which uh, is a really good thing, very good. So even if, if you're lean and you're really inactive, you are just genetically lean, well, it's good, better than not, but could be that you're not so healthy in glucose stuff, especially as you get to 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, young people don't have to worry about any other shit. Um, there's of course, you know, so some of the, this, the circles I intersect with are not natty circles. And when you say growth hormone, it is uh, insulin resistance uh, accumulates, at a meaningful rate so glucose disposal agents become not some magic tool that's going to make you superman but they become basically an antagonist to that so you take glucose disposal agents all the time to make sure you're still normal and healthy as opposed to the direction growth hormone pulls you in which is pre-diabetic so something like metformin take it for the rest of your life is probably a good idea metformin is also one of the only drugs that's essentially been proven to be a life extension drug animals for sure probably um, its downsides are super, super tiny. There's some small chance of ketoacidosis, uh, but uh, it's very, very rare. So it's one of those drugs that's almost like it's on the World Health Organization list of like essential medicines and stuff. It's a really, really baller drug one. So very, very stand up round of applause for the uh, biochemists that made that one. But, um, you know, so for people that are not natty, I think the form is really cool. I, I, I it, it, fucking absurd questions from people like I'm Maddie. Should I take metformin? Like, you dumb cocksucker, it's a drug. <laughs> you're not. Yeah, you should take trend too, but like you won't be really Maddie anymore. So like you know, you're doing the fucking the lie detector before your show, like you drug free. Like is metformin a drug? They're like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> right, but uh, so it's one of those things that uh, you know metformin really starts to benefit you if you're on growth hormone. If you're not, it just really won't make much of a difference at all. Um, you know, but you could take chromium and shit like that. A little tiny little drop uh, of enhancing insulin sensitivity. Again, it's if you push your growth hormone high enough, you, you know, you want everything on your side, right? You may want to be diabetic when you're 65 instead of, you know, 70. Then you take some chromium for your entire body career as you slam growth hormone to crazy levels. So with all that being said, I think if you're uh, relatively lean, if you're very physically active and if you have uh, luck of the draw genetics, whichever way they go, I think you've taken care of like 95% of your insulin sensitivity, and all of the other stuff about how to juggle uh, carbs, fats, training, non-training, and that's there's got some there's other utilities to eating more carbs and less fats on training versus non-training days, regard, uh, insulin sensitivity aside, for example. We want to potentiate hard workouts by having a pre-workout high carbohydrate yield it's just been shown very well um having fully loaded glycogen makes you more anabolic in response to workouts than having non-fully loaded glycogen so there's a bigger stuff there the sensitivity to glucose after training is a little bit higher at least especially if you train multiple times a day that's a big deal to me and you're not going to train twice a day and like have a workout not have carbs then have another workout it'd be fucking stupid and then on your off days uh, you know uh, can you eat more or just as many carbs? Yeah, sure. If you lower the fats and keep the calories uh, even, um, you can. Uh, uh, interesting things that I used to believe, which is just totally fucking wrong, is that eating a higher fat, lower carb diet made your insulin sensitivity better. It probably doesn't do that. Um, uh, the hilarious thing is if you read the rodent studies on um, inducing diabetes, uh, diabetes type 2 in, in rodents, the standard model is to overfeed fats. You think like well, the first time you've read this, I thought the first time I ever read it, it was an undergraduate. I thought I read it wrong. I read it like I read two other studies and I reread the study and I was like, fat overfeeding causes diabetes. I thought it was a sugar thing, fucking diabetes. It turns out no, and there's nothing particularly magical about fat overfeeding. It's just when you gain a shitload of body fat, which is what it does, you will become eventually type two diabetic, right? so um so it's one of those things where people say like oh man i'm eating like gallons of fucking olive oil and peanut butter and on my off days and no carbs i'm insulin sensitivity you're like you're not fucking increasing your insulin sensitivity you might be by like a percent or something like that it's totally not worth it um well one of our main products at rp the diet templates they actually program plenty of carbs on training days and not a lot of carbs on non-training days there's a very good reason why they do that (laughs) because they're designed for people who train between twice a week and six days a week to use them. We don't know how many days a week you train when we send your templates. So if you are eating six days a week of super high-carb, high-calories, but you train, train twice, you're just going to be a fat piece of shit after a while. But if you eat less carbs on your days off, then you can be, you know, you know, can adjust where you have two or three high-carb days on your workout days. That just really means more calories because just reflective of a larger week of calorie burning, and it all regulates in that fashion. Now, can you eat lower fats and still have higher carbs but just lower calorie on those off days to make up for it you absolutely can but usually people don't like to do that because eating lower carbs for short periods of time is relatively tenable eating lower fats is just fucking annoying but it drains the life out of your fucking diet like lower low carb eating allows you to have some lower carb not zero carb because that's another life-draining thing but low carb eating can really let you have like sausage and peanut butter and almonds and sauces and you just don't eat as much pasta and you're good but like with low fat high carb you're just eating like a fucking bro 24 7 and it's that variety that's really cool so you're going to have to do I'm higher like carb, lower fat yeah right exactly like a strawberries and skim milk and suicide diet and it's just like <laughs> After a while, you know, you just don't want to eat like that. There's got to be some. Of it. So it's a cool variety thing to use, where you do higher carbs in your training days, lower carbs in your non-training days, just to spice it up and eat some different kinds of foods and not drive yourself insane. It's a potential pathway to that, but it's not some miraculous thing that is done for its own sake.
0: Can I say one more thing, Mike? Before, how long have you got? Five minutes. Unless your know, thing takes five minutes, and <laughs> no, an I, impressive speech. I just had one small thing, and that would be there. Be the argument that I have money. I want to everything. Bodybuilding is my life. It is it worth buying any of the supplements like the glucose disposal agents or anything like that? Are there? Is there? Just they provide something for that person that just wants to put all their money into it um, because that argument boy, will oh, be used. Boy, well, I don't really know what people mean when they say things like that. The glucose disposal agents come in two different
2: types. Three. There's chromium picolinate, which is the worst glucose disposal agent of all time. It's really not even technically that. It's just an insulin sensitizer. It, it works a tiny bit. It's super cheap. You buy it at a pharmacy. You take it. It does dick. You can't measure shit. You won't see anything in training. But after 10 years, you might like be a little healthier. Great. Check off list. That's type one. Type two is a gdas that are available at gmc and other places that are just garbage waste of your time that just probably anadrol in a fucking pill and you take it and you're like i feel incredible my sex drive is amazing and i have pimples do gdas call pimples and you're like no they don't cause pimples you dumbass so like oh i must be on steroids like yes you're on steroids and don't take pills from random supplement companies like you know like fucking random cocksucker nutrition like that's the name of the fucking brand you're like I, that's a brand i can trust that's the same shit grandma used you know like don't do that and then the last category of glucose disposal agents which are incredibly expensive usually not always uh pharmacological agents um uh, you know you can go to glucose disposal agents go all the way to uh, trulicity and things like that which are like like fucking 800 dollars a week but they like legitimately just like reverse diabetes, unbelievable! It's like this unreal peptide they just fucking made, super advanced. You're not gonna buy that shit if you can afford it, dude. Fucking rock on! It's sweet. uh These once-week injections. You know, like if you if you ran out of fucking hobbies and you want to inject yourself more for no reason, that's a great drug. But like metformin is commercially available, sort of. It's super cheap, and it's really the gold standard. because supposedly. The thing is though metformin is not a supplement. It's a drug. I don't know how to get drugs from India or China or whatever, I know nothing about that. But if you don't know anything about that, you're not looking for a supplement. So people are like, should I invest in a supplement? It's not a supplement, it's a drug. Now if you go to your doctor and say I want metformin, he would be like, Why? Are you diabetic? he would be like, No. <laughs> right? So you gotta go through back alleys, you gotta know people, and then you know, you're in that world. And that world's not great. So when, basically what I'm saying is when people are like, should I supplement with a glucose disposal agent? It's not a supplement. It's either bullshit, chromium, which is fine, eat it, great, But there's this whole swath of shit that's legal but doesn't work, or it's just steroids. And then there's real uh, glucose disposal agents, which either you get through a doctor or you get through the guy behind the
1: GNC, the dumpster with the trench coat, you know the guy. And that only would make sense, I don't know, but that, I'm assuming I don't know it, would that only, only, it would be only helpful if you are also on, on, on other drugs that would require it. It's not going to just right. be helpful independently, right?
2: So it is helpful independently, but to a, really, to a really tiny extent, and it's only helpful insofar as it makes you more insulin sensitive. If that's a problem for you, then yes, but if it's not a problem, it's basically a drop in the bucket. Here's another consideration. The mechanism of action of Metformin is actually to... Now, this is very cell specific It's by no means general, it's to increase the AMP kinase activity. Okay, am I going to say that metformin is not catabolic? I'm not prepared to make that statement. It might be mildly catabolic. To make metformin effective, you know, full stack, so to speak, you might have to shoot tons of fucking uh, steroids and growth hormone, and then metformin in, in that... Uh, you know, a little concoction, now it's fucking got a roll, you know what I mean? But, you know, before that, it might not be anabolic at all. Am I going to say it's net catabolic? No, because the increase in muscle sensitivity makes you more anabolic and the, the increase in the AMPK could potentially make you a little bit more catabolic. It's sort of like a 50-50 switch. So my prediction actually is if you just give normal people metformin, they don't get any muscle or lose any fat, nothing happens. They've actually done studies with metformin on long-term weight loss and fat loss, it doesn't do either one of those. Uh, they thought it could, but it doesn't. It just makes you less diabetic, which is fucking sweet. And then if you eat less food, you get all the lean shit, which is awesome. But it, it's really like, you know, bodybuilders use it as a very specific drug for a purpose for growth hormone uh, abuse. And if, if you talk to a bodybuilder not running growth, and you, you take metformin, you say one of two things. They're like, yeah, it's cool, like longevity drug, and it's sweet. It makes me healthier. Or they're like, why the fuck would I do that? But it's not like, yeah, it makes me jacked. Like, no one's metformin's metformin has ever made anyone jacked by itself.
0: From every day. I don't know if, Eric, you didn't have anything to add to that. Did you, the the question of? Uh, the only thing, I, this is nitpicky, but um, the the idea of topping off your
1: glycogen stores by having a high-carb diet on the day you train, unless you're training pretty late in the afternoon or evening, that's not going to shift the needle much on glycogens because it takes time for that to get stored. So you that's might want to yeah so i I would say if you train in the morning and you want to go into that training session with high high glycogen topped off you need to have a high carb day the day before for sure uh there is a pre-workout carbohydrate however can
2: without topping off glycogen stores that give you higher more stable blood glucose levels and thus potentially energy production so there's multiple pathways there i basically when people are like it doesn't matter when you eat carbs i'm just going to go fasted into a workout or low carb it's like you know if you choose you might as well eat some carbs pre-workout might as well eat some carbs post-workout is it like you got to eat them all pre and post? No, but there should be a little, a little sort of bump around the workout. Right. It makes sense. and, and if, uh, That means that you get a certain amount of carbs per week, and that little bump around your workouts makes the off days a, a little bit more of a sort of the declivity maybe or just like a little bit less carbs on average. That's it. It's just because you get a certain number of weekly carbs and putting them in one place has to put them in the other. It's not like on the off days, if you eat high carbs, something terrible happens and you die. It's just that you took those carbs from somewhere and put them somewhere.
1: Also, if you're someone pushing food volumes up pretty high, you might find this, this weird inverse happens where you don't want to eat a large meal before training because you're 100%. full 24-7 and putting on your squat belt when you have you know four cups of rice in your stomach sucks. So instead, you okay. shift food actually away from pre-workout <laughs> and you just have a banana.
2: Uh, I've done that many, many times. I wouldn't even... I would take my mask and shake like hours before my leg workout. And then by the time I get to my leg workout, I'm like sitting on... A Gatorade because I'm like ordering on hypoglycemia to get through the workout not food after the workout because I'm vomiting and then when I'm done vomiting or dry heating on people in jiu I come home I start sipping on another mask and shake slowly then I sip faster then I have whole food meals and I'm back to normal and the like off days even though I don't want to is when I smash the most solid food because that's the only time I'm not feeling like vomiting uh, from working out there you go.
0: Fantastic, guys. I think um, we can wrap this up and let you guys on your merry way and we'll have to organize another one. Hopefully you're both still game for it and we can talk more about kind of the other nutritional considerations that we want to get into. But thank you both. I'm sure the listeners absolutely enjoyed this um, and we will catch you all soon.